This episode is sponsored by ByHeart. And I feel like I need to preface what I'm going to say with this. I'm a huge advocate of breastfeeding. Anyone who knows me well knows that nursing is something I believe in. And all five of our biological children were breastfed until they were 19 to 23 months old. However, we also have fostered and adopted, and I've been so grateful for formula companies in those situations. I'm also grateful for formula companies because our last two biological children, I really struggled with my supply and did all the things, spent so much time and effort, and just was never able to produce enough for them to be able to gain weight and not be hungry. And so I was so grateful for companies like Byheart. Byheart is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. Using the latest in breast milk science, Byheart created a clinically proven, easy to digest infant formula that's made with organic, grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. They're made with certified clean ingredients. It has no soy, corn syrup, GMOs, or palm oil. Curious about Byheart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com forward slash podcast with code crystal for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. So go to byheart.com forward slash podcast and use crystal to get your welcome offer. Welcome to the Crystal Pain Show, where we help you embrace your life right where you are and give you practical steps to get to where you want to go. Whether you are in your car, folding laundry, cooking, cleaning, or maybe even just enjoying a cup of coffee and a few minutes of quiet, we're so glad you're joining us today. Here's your host, wife, mother of four, foster mom, entrepreneur, and author, Crystal Payne. Welcome to another episode of The Crystal Pain Show. I am really excited about today's topic. I have Nicole Zazowski across from me, and y'all, I have been reading her book. I told her I'd never even heard of her before, but this book, What If It's Wonderful, Release Your Fears, Choose Joy, and Find the Courage to Celebrate, is hitting me in some really deep places. Who would have thought that a book about celebration was going to be a book that was going to cause me to uncover some really big things in my life, things that I need to process through and work on and just discover about myself and areas that I can really grow as a person. So I am just super thrilled for this conversation. I feel like I have literally 767 questions that I want to ask you, but Nicole, let's start out with, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself because I'm just getting to know you, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. My name is Nicole Zazowski. I'm a marriage and family therapist uh, just outside New York City in Connecticut, and I've authored two books. Uh, The first is From Lost to Found, and the second one, which we'll talk about today, is What If It's Wonderful? And I've got three little kiddos at home. How old are they? Six, two, and one. So you are in... The season where life is very, very full. (laughs) It sure is full of goodness, I say. Um, So what really inspired you to write this book? Mm. You know, a lot of people read the title and see confetti on the cover and assume that it was born out of a season of joy and good news and celebration. And in part, it was, but it was really born out of 
a season that could largely be characterized by change and loss. And when you go through something painful, whether it's a painful season or an event or the loss of a loved one or a betrayal, there's the loss itself and then there's the cost. Mm. And the cost is the impact to your sense of identity and your sense of safety. Mm. And what took me a really long time to realize was that part of the cost of that season for me was that my joy was accompanied by a ton of fear. Mm. Um, I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was preparing for the worst case scenario. Um, and I was really grieved, truly grieved when I woke up one morning and realized, yes, there's been the loss itself, but also I've missed out on so much joy because I refuse to, to fully embrace it. And most people don't realize that joy is actually the most vulnerable feeling that we feel because when you hold something, it is automatically accompanied by the possibility of loss, of disappointment, or or even devastation. And so sometimes it's easier not to hold something at all than to hold something that might break. And I didn't realize how much I was missing out on because I was not embracing joy. Mm-hmm. Joy is the most vulnerable feeling. That's really powerful. Yes. Brene Brown talks about that and just um, how how that's so counter to what we think because we think of vulnerability as pain. Like the more I'm willing to share about my pain, the more vulnerable I am. But it's actually joy, having the courage to celebrate, whether it's yourself or somebody else, um, that's actually the most vulnerable feeling we feel. So you said that you recognize this. How did you go about recognizing this in your life that you were not allowing yourself to experience joy? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I wish I could point to a watershed moment of this really held up the mirror for me. It was more that I was, I started entering a different kind of season. I don't, I don't think our seasons are all pain or all joy. But I do think certainly sometimes they lean in one direction or another. And I started walking into this season that was characterized by more good news, um, more celebration. And I just, I was afraid to connect with it. Mm. And certainly some conversations with my husband, I think, held up the mirror. Like um, he, he just was sort of reflecting back. You don't seem like you're really embracing this experience or you'll talk about your joy and then the next second, what if it goes away? What if I can't trust it? What's lurking and around the corner waiting to steal it? Um, And so it was just a slow understanding of everything that I was missing out on um, in the process of really experiencing a lot of joy. Mm. And in your book, you talk about this season that was really hard where you had multiple miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that so many women can relate to when you talked about how you couldn't give yourself permission almost to hope. Yeah. I'd love for you to just tell us about that season, what that was like to walk through that and just speak to the woman who maybe she's going through that right now. Mm. I'm so sorry for anyone listening that is 
you know, pregnant right now and wondering if they're going to meet that babe or having just walked through a miscarriage, I, I know that pain and it is so, so hard. So I'll start by saying that, you know, my husband and I have a diagnosis that actually means when I get pregnant, I have a 50% chance of losing that baby to miscarriage. Um, and at one point I was batting much lower than that. I had had my first son and then five miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And so there was, there was a chronic impact of that. Um, there, there was a cumulative effect, um, because the more I got knocked down, uh, the harder it was Mm -hmm. to, to hope and rise to delight in my days. Um, it just felt like, you know, I, I, describe it like a boxer in the ring, you know, the more times they get knocked down and punched, the the slower they are to, to rise to their feet again. Um, and just those waiting room experiences, those Mm. are traumatic. And we don't think of sitting in a waiting room as traumatic, but just knowing that what was going to be revealed on the screen and the ultrasound would tell us a lot about whether we should continue to hope Mm -hmm. or whether we should start to grieve. And I got pretty good at knowing what to look for. Um, And, you know, when an ultrasound technician or a nurse or whoever is doing it is really wanting to give you good news and just every pause, you're counting the seconds and hoping that you're going to hear the words that you want to hear. But I started protecting myself with pessimism. Um, and even cynicism. And those two, we use them interchangeably, but pessimism is um, having a negative outlook on events. And cynicism actually doubts people's motives. Mm -hmm. And in my case, um, in the context of my faith, that looks like doubting God's Mm -hmm. motives. Like maybe he'll give breakthrough in somebody else's story, but probably not mine. I would love to hear more. I just feel like I hear from so many women who are struggling with miscarriage or with the hope they're in the middle of infertility, secondary infertility, that longing mm-hmm. for a child and just feeling like everyone else yes. is getting what I want. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you handle that? Like uh, yes, it was really difficult. And, and in the context of the celebration conversation, I think that's one of the main hesitancies that we have around Mm -hmm. celebration is either when we're the one who feels like they have cause to celebrate and we're worried about hurting somebody else, Mm -hmm. or when somebody else is celebrating a dream that we would love to have for ourselves. And it's so painful and so Mm -hmm. difficult. So the first thing I'll say, just as a starting place, I absolutely had safe people um, to process my feelings of grief with because I do think it's it's very real and human that as you're watching this joy happen in somebody else's life, it stings um, mm-hmm. a little bit and or a lot. Um, and so having a safe place to process those feelings was really, really important. And then there is this there is this component though that once you've processed that pain, I think when, and this goes for any dream, when somebody is celebrating a dream that we would love to have for ourselves, I think the tendency is to just accept 
their joy, mm. like find a way to be okay with it. Um, and often, I and you and I have probably both stood in conversations with women that sound like this. Sometimes this looks like, well, she has that, but I have this. Mm. And there's sort of this odd competitive comparison um, as a means of trying to accept it. And I think there's more for us there. Um, really, the only way I have found to combat that feeling is to actively celebrate that person. Mm. And of course, I've said I'm grieving and and I'm talking through those painful feelings in a safe place, but also I'm celebrating with my hands. I'm I'm going into my garden and cutting flowers for this friend and telling her that I'm excited for her. I'm actually taking action in that celebration um, because that I think is the only way that we can truly join somebody in their joy um, in a way that that's helpful to our own healing, but also helpful in connecting with the relationship. In your book, you said, I realized that much of the loss I had experienced in my life was not only the grief and disappointment itself, but also the joy I overlooked because I was too afraid to embrace it. I was missing out on delight in the present moment because I dreaded the pain I imagined the future would bring. For someone who's sitting in that right now, whether it's, you know, they're in the season of infertility or they are experiencing loss of another kind, or it just feels like, you know, everything that could go wrong is going wrong in their life, or they've just had hard thing after hard thing after hard thing, or disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. How can they delight in the present moment? What does that look like practically? Yes. So a really practical exercise um, that I love for many reasons um, is the practice of savoring. And just a side note on that. So the last third of the book has a lot of really practical ways to celebrate your everyday life. And what was important to me is that all of those practices are accessible no matter what kind of season you're walking in. Mm. So this celebration is not something where you have to add something to your life or or wait for something to change in your life. I think we think of it as a reward or Mm. a reaction when it's really a rhythm that helps us cultivate joy. And so savoring is my favorite on-ramp to celebrating your everyday life. Because what savoring does is it celebrates the ordinary. And the way that you do this is you just ask your five traditional senses what they're going to remember about a moment. Mm -hmm. I love to do this in the present. So if I can catch myself, you know, as a mom, I'm washing dishes at the window and I'll see the sun hit my uh, six-year-old's hair as he's playing in the backyard and, and listening to him laugh and giggle. So that just that simple snapshot, like a photograph, and you just say, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? What do you taste? And what do you feel? And that helps your brain savor that moment, celebrate it in a way that it can actually keep it and carry it forward and recall it later. Because the brain is extremely efficient Um, It only wants to keep what it thinks it's going to need, which unfortunately 
uh, tend to be the bigger negative things, things we would tend to worry about. There's also some things going on in the brain that savoring really helps counter. The first is a hedonic treadmill, which means that our brains rapidly adapt to joy. So maybe you get news that you thought would make you never want for anything else or just this thrill of excitement. And then very quickly, your brain gets used to it. Like you've jumped into cold water and your body has adapted to the temperature. Uh, The second dynamic going on in the brain is our brains are just stickier with negative, painful input. Those everyday moments of delight, your brain is going to think of as unnecessary and dismiss them. So we need a practice that's going to help us delight in those things and hold them. And then finally, we have this awful tendency as human beings to tell our joy how it can be improved upon. Mm. So maybe you give a presentation and um, you're really proud of how it went. You saw some nods and smiles in the audience. It felt like you were connecting. Maybe you got a few compliments on your way back to your seat afterward. And you sit down and you feel so satisfied. And then you think, oh, it would have been better if I had used that story. Mm. Or they said I was a good speaker, but they didn't say I was a great speaker. Mm. And we start telling our joy what would have made it better. And so savoring is just a way of delighting in what is and really asking our five senses what they're going to remember so that we can carry it forward and and celebrate the life that we're already living. I think one of the statements that I love so much in your book that I'd like to unpack with you is still there's a difference between feelings being real Mm. and feelings being true. Let's talk about what (laughs) that is, how that applies in our everyday life. Yes. Um, So as a therapist, this is probably the the statement I come back to most often as a foundation for a lot of my work and, and in my own life as well. Um, I think in the psychology world, uh, in the in the human experience, we can kind of lean in one of two directions, either that feelings don't matter at all and we should squish them and ignore them and just carry on with our lives and do what we need to do. Or that feelings are the most real true thing about us and um, that we should make decisions and choices and um, let our feelings guide our lives. And I would like a third option, (laughs) which is what that statement you referenced is really about. It's honoring that our feelings are real. We are not robots We are feeling human beings paying attention to a hurting world. And those feelings are going to come from one of two directions. They're either going to come from a violation of love, which um, tells us who we are. So we're going to feel it in our identity. So some examples might be worthless or inadequate, unable to measure up to expectations, not good enough. And then a violation of trust is the other direction. And that's going to make us feel pain in whether or not we're safe. So feeling powerless, helpless, unsafe, abandoned, all of those would be examples of those unsafe feelings. And so those are real. We all have stories that shape the kind of pain 
that we feel when we go through something. So you and I, let's say we have a painful conversation with a friend tomorrow, exact same conversation. You and I would probably feel different things because of the ways that our unique stories have shaped that kind of pain. Um, And so those are absolutely real, but they do not always tell us the truth about our sense of identity and safety. And so where we are empowered to make a choice is say, okay, what as, and a lot of people might call this reparenting or to take an empowered position as an adult where we can say, okay, what does my heart need to hear from me right now? And how do I want to speak to that pain from an empowered position? And and what truth do I want to claim? And then the next step would be, and what action do I want to take based on that truth that is more healing and helpful than the reaction that's totally understandable, but not going to be very helpful. So how do you know if a feeling is true or not? Mm. Uh, if it's if it's a painful feeling, it is probably not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might have very good reasons for feeling that way. Um, I've never heard someone's story and been confused why they feel that way. Um, but the truth is, you know, we as human beings have value. So while you might go through a situation that teaches you otherwise, and that's real, that situation or that person or whatever that hurtful thing is, does not get to decide whether or not you're valuable. Um, Similarly, yes, we are not totally safe in this life, um, but we're not alone. We're empowered to make choices. And if we have to go through something, we can grow through it um, and stuff our pockets with all this good learning and helpful healing for the future. And so um, if it's pain, it's real, but it's not true. You say in your book, many of the missed opportunities, losses, and relational disconnection and tension came as a result of my inability to celebrate moments of progress, yeses, beauty in the present, and connection with people I love. I don't want to look back on my life, my beautiful, wonderful, God-given life, and realize that I've mostly missed it while I was busy preparing for the worst. Mm. That will preach right there. <laughs> Preaching to me right now. I'm still working on that. <laughs> so so let's say someone, I'm, I'm just thinking back to when you've had multiple miscarriages mm-hmm. and you have this diagnosis that you know, you know, there's this high percentage that you're going to have another miscarriage mm-hmm. and you're wanting to have another baby. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's just disappointment after disappointment after heart after hurt, after loss, after loss. How do you live in that moment and see the beauty when it just feels like you're in the fog and it's just dark? Mm -hmm. Yes. So there's a couple uh, elements here. The first is that I talked about that protective pessimism earlier where if I chose the other option, um, if I chose to keep my expectations low, like you said, just not expect, not hope, uh, the research says it actually doesn't protect us from disappointment or devastation at all. I'm going to be no less hurt 
if I keep my expectations low than if I hope. Mm -hmm. Just from a purely neuroscience perspective, it it just doesn't work. And so there's there's a practical element of why not hope? Mm -hmm. Um, Why not uh, believe in what could be and and how God might move um, if you're a person of faith and have that perspective? And also just all the moments of connection that I I missed many times, um, whether it was connection with my husband as we hoped together. He does not have the same problem that I have. <laughs> he tends to hope a little easier than I do. And so I missed out on a lot of connection with him because I was unwilling to join him in that place. And that doesn't mean that I'm pretending we have a different reality or that I'm not aware of what could be. We were both very aware of that. But just the joy that can come from hoping and grieving together, if that's the result, or celebrating together, if that's the result, um, it's really being willing to do both together that uh, makes such a difference. And so uh, the other element that was really helpful to me, and it's going to sound a little strange, but Thanksgiving, um, the practice of Thanksgiving. We talk a lot about gratitude, and I'm grateful. I think it's a wonderful conversation to have. It does increase our joy. The research is clear about that because it helps us notice and name what is good. So as we're noticing, we're scanning our environment for what is good, even if it looks different than what you hoped. And then naming it just helps us put a structure around it in a way that we can hold it. But what we don't talk about is the fact that Thanksgiving actually expressing the gratitude that we feel doubles the joy that we glean from gratitude had we simply just felt it in our heart. So I just started this practice of if I feel it, say it. And and in the fertility conversation, in the miscarriage conversation, a lot of that was just with my husband and the friendship that we had and the support that he offered me in those moments for the wonderful doctors and nurses that cared through, you know, carried me through joy and carried me through pain with such tenderness. Um, for the community that I had, I literally had friends who wore bracelets as a reminder to pray for me and and to think of me and sent me pictures of ways that I was on their mind. Um, all these delightful moments of connection in my community that I would have never had, or I shouldn't say that, it was hard to imagine having had that not been my story. Mm. And if you gave me the pen, I'd still write a different story. I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not saying that that it wasn't painful and it's what I would choose. Um, but if I had to go through it, my goodness, was there so much provision in the midst of a situation that looked very different than what my vision was for myself. You say my place of brokenness has become my place of restoration. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to just share what has changed in your life since you have had this perspective shift. You know, you said you're still a work in progress, mm-hmm. but I think there has been this big perspective shift of how you are approaching life and yeah. instead of, you know, just waiting for the other shoe to drop to embrace right where God has you. Um, what does it look like to 
take that brokenness in your life and see it become a place of restoration? Mm. A couple things come to mind. One of the reasons that I was really afraid to step into that joy was because of what you just shared. My The relationship that I had with God and other people was really precious to me in that dark place when I was so aware of my need. Um, and I was scared that that would go away in the light. And so just realizing and discovering for myself that Uh, My relationship with God and other people is close in both the light and the dark, um, that that I can connect with God and other people just as much, and I can grow um, in the light. You know, sometimes we say, nothing grows on the mountaintop, (laughs) only in the valley. And I just think different things grow on the mountaintop. Um, The other piece that I think is so important is, you know, pain has a way of reorganizing what you love and an honest look at my life revealed, especially in writing this book that yes, I've experienced disappointment and pain as a result of a no or a missed opportunity or loss. But a lot of the disappointment I've experienced is because I've expected more joy from the gift than it was meant to give. Mm. Even really good things like a relationship or a baby or, you know, things that no one would shame us for wanting or feeling joy over. But what sits at the center of our affection will determine the satiation of our joy. Mm. And I had the wrong things on center. And so I just started asking myself, what really good things, what good gifts need to be moved off center where I can still love them, but I can love them in the right place. Mm. So I love that you talked about that, like, you know, that center. And I'd love for us to just close out with you, just encouraging the woman who she is feeling like, if I just have this one thing, Mm this one thing, then I'm going to be able to celebrate. Then I'm going to find joy. Yes. How can she have a perspective shift to get to a place where she can have joy here and now? Mm. Yes. That thing that you long for is a beautiful gift and it is not wrong to wait and long for that thing and to have that as a desire of your heart but that thing does not um, capture the joy that is available to you. And I think that's my biggest heartbeat with now understanding from both a biblical and a neuroscience perspective what celebration is. We often picture it on the far side of a dream realized or a goal achieved or some sort of shift in our circumstances. And Celebration is not a reaction to good news. It's not um, a reward for an accomplishment. It can be, but I think we've so narrowed our definition to being that, that it is so much more of a rhythm Mm. of cultivating joy. And so I just encourage you, I'd love for you to read the whole book, but that last third has some really great ideas of how can I cultivate joy in this, in a season of suffering, even um, regardless of what kind of season I'm walking, what do these rhythms look like? 
I love you talking about celebration not being something that it's just like when we get to the end of something, when we achieve this goal, because I think that we're programmed to believe that is what celebration is. 100%. We are constantly just, we're going to celebrate when we get to this. But I love how this book is about, it's a heart change. It's a perspective change that we can celebrate in the here and now, even when life is hard, things are dark. When hope isn't realized, we still have things to celebrate and to make that a rhythm. And so I just really encourage anyone who maybe you just feel like you could just use a little bit more joy in your life, or maybe you're really, really just tired and discouraged and you feel like you don't have a lot to hope for. You're just in the middle of a messy, dark place. This book will encourage you whether you're just hanging on by a thread or whether you just could use a little shot of encouragement. It's what if it's wonderful, release your fears, choose joy, and find the courage to celebrate. Thank you for joining us today. For more great resources, please visit crystalpain.com.